This week, find out what novel Justine kept texting me to tell me how fantastic it was and what Michael Nava thinks of being an icon. Hi, I'm Brad, and I interview the authors. I am Justine, and I read their books. And welcome to Queer Writers of Crime. Worked out pretty well, Justine. That, that, that did. Quick and easy and right to the point. That's right. All right. Of course, then we lengthen it by our chit-chat. Well, that's true, but we always lengthen it by chit-chat. But at least we're going to be jumping right into the show. That's right. Michael Nava is the guest today. He was great to talk to. As always, he's a very sweet man, so I really enjoy that. So that's coming up. Did you happen to catch me on that other show? The Road Podcast? No. I know you caught the Road Podcast when I was on Life Milestones. No, I did not yet. Okay. I'm going to put the link in the show notes, and I will tell everybody that it's a podcast that's called Life's Milestones, and I met the host online, and the show discusses birth, naming ceremonies, relationships, marriage, and death. And he asked pretty much everybody the same question, which sounds like it would be boring, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't shut people up Uh and he lets them just keep going. And everybody has a really interesting story to tell. I listened to it to see if I really wanted to be on the show. So I listened to quite a few episodes and I'm hooked. Great. Add it to the podcast queue. And if you want to hear the episode that I was on where I talk about why I have been married twice, but I've had four weddings, (laughs) or hear me talk about the great chicken shit caper. Oh, dear. All they've got to do is go to Mark's show and listen in. And it's Life's Milestones. Excellent. I want to talk about Twitter. I am becoming even more active in Twitter. So (laughs) I would love people... To interact with me. Have you swearing off at how many times, Brad? I have sworn off at that many times, but I, I only did a political statement the other day. It was on my personal account, not the podcast account. I had a couple of right ringers say some really disgusting things to me. And I block anybody if they can't talk in a deep. You know, I'll, I'll debate anybody, but if, if you're just going to be stupid and call names and you blocked. That's but right. I got a lot of support behind it anyway. So I get my fill of that maybe once a month. Yeah. On the podcast side, it's mostly lighthearted stuff. I retweet things from other podcasts that I know them well, and they do the same, and chat. So I'm friends with lots of podcasts and quite a few of our listeners, but I would like more people to jump in. So that would be great. And the last thing I want to talk about is buy me a cup of coffee. If people want to help us out. It's right there in the show notes. Click on the donate button and drop us a few bucks to help keep this podcast going. How is that for a menu of things to talk about? Yeah, that was a menu of things to talk about. I got to talk about Paul Rudd. Oh, good. I I can't let an episode go by without Paul Rudd. People have probably seen it. He was Jimmy Fallon's first lip sync battle episode. I see. And I'm not a fan of Fallon, but... Paul Rudd did a Queen song, and the name escapes me. It should be easy. They cut him off after a minute instead of letting him do the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But it makes me laugh and laugh. If I'm in a bad mood, I put it on. It's only 60 seconds long. <laughs> and I have decided if my books are ever made into movies, I will insist Paul Rudd be the protagonist and play Mitchell Riley role. 
I don't ever see Mitch O'Reilly as being really funny. Oh, no, no. Paul would be totally wrong for the part. I see. He doesn't have the personality for the part. He doesn't have the look for the part. But I don't give a damn. If I'm having a movie, <laughs> Paul Rudd is going to be in that movie. Okay. I think I did my grocery list of things to cover today. Let me see. Um, I've only got one thing on my list. I'm just waiting for it here. Okay. I'm done. Wow. I hope after all that, people are still listening. I hope so. For new listeners, we do eventually get to book recommendations and to interviews, but, you know. Any moment now, guys. Any moment. (laughs) I'm ready for you to say what you got to say. All right. If they aren't listening, they're going to miss a really great book. This is called The Double Vice. And it's like a a double vice is not a Edelweiss kind of word. It's double as in one, two, and vice. As in those things we all like to indulge in, but sometimes shouldn't. It's by Chris Holcomb, and it is for the first in a new series called The First Hidden Gotham Novel. There's a mouthful. Designed to be read, not spoken out loud, I guess. I actually have a question for you. I happened to look that book up, but I didn't click on the author pages. I know this is the first in the series. Is this their first book? I don't believe so. Okay. that's all. I was curious about that. He certainly writes like it's not his first book. I got to say, it's highly polished. It is the second book in the series won't be out till December. So if you if you like reading series when they're all out, you got a couple years of wait. But I really recommend you put, pick this up now. It works very well as a standalone. Only a couple of threads are going to be carried into the next book. It is set in 1926 New York. In the middle of Prohibition right before the Great Depression, where subcultures like the gay culture, which was not called gay at the time, and the black culture, which I don't think was called black at the time, they flourished in their own little areas of the city. The main character, Dash Parker, was a very rich young man in a very rich family. And when he came out to them, it wasn't coming out then, it was they figured it out. They sent him on his way. He didn't want to stay with them. Uh, and he opened a speakeasy. He's got a couple of friends and roommates. They're crammed into a little apartment. The bartender Joe is there in the room with him. And then bed in the hall is his other friend Finn, who is a waitress at the club. They, they, uh, it's all period. It's all period. Let me just say the way he describes the tenement above a theater is it's just a two room little apartment, bathroom down the hall. And then he's got to go to the public baths to take a shower. All true to history. Much of what he talks about in the city, I grew up there and a lot of that is still there. He gets it very accurately. Actually, a lot of it's not still there. A lot of it was there 50 years ago when I was growing up. All right, so that's kind of the players, and I'm not doing it justice. What city is it? New York City. Okay. The Gotham, in the first hidden Gotham novel. Yeah, I think of Gotham is Chicago, but that's okay. Oh, blasphemy, Brad. Blasphemy. (laughs) I don't know if I can recover from this. I may have to put my two-week notice in. Well, Superman lived in Metropolis, which I picture as New York City, and Batman's in Gotham, which is darker, and so I picture that as Chicago. That's why I always thought that way. 
But others have corrected me. You're not the first. <laughs> All right. So so I've kind of plotted through the uh, the uh, backstory. And the author does not plot through the backstory. You will pick all this up and find it out along the way as we delve right into the mystery. A boorish rich guy of German descent. So German said he's a German immigrant. Somehow manages to get his way into the speakeasy. And he is looking for a pansy, which is slang for a man in drag. And as it turns out, he's not really looking for the pansy. He's looking for his brother who was with the pansy. Uh, the brother is quite frightened. And Dash you know, gets him out and into safe hiding up in the mansions and clubs up in Harlem. Uh, which is so well written. It's such a, there were mansions up in Harlem that people didn't know about. And then the white folk were as unwelcome there as the black folk were elsewhere. Um, and it takes a while. Dash knows a couple of them and, and they know him. And, and in certain parts of the area, he can walk freely and get in and into clubs and the like. So he hides this young man, Carl, up in one of these clubs and the next morning he goes back and Carl had been strangled in the night and left in Central Park. So that's the mystery. Uh, and it's and it's not so much the mystery because, you know, cops don't care about uh, gay people, though that certainly was true. It was it's, it's all because Dash and his roommates are in danger and you don't know what the danger is because he doesn't know what the danger is. You've got a bunch of different factions, a bunch of different storylines. Uh, a, a notorious gangster shows up at, at one point and then there's a group of Carl's friends. And then of course there's Carl's brother who works for the committee of 14 designed to clean up the streets. And by that, it means removing the degenerates, which constitute every minority group. And then he's got, there's a woman who started her own law firm. And I found this particularly interesting because apparently women lawyers, even frowned upon then, could register with the New York State Bar, but they couldn't become members of the bar. They had to become members of the Society of Women Lawyers. The New York Bar Association is housed in this elegant building with fancy offices. And then you've got the rundown Women Lawyers Association where the women are kept. It weaves it through. Every scene is laid upon the other with some action. Uh, you don't know who is coming from where. People flip sides a whole lot. He has one of the black singers working with him, and then he ends up in a difficult situation in the house party of another very well-known black woman, where it's three stories. The top story is heaven, the middle story is purgatory, and the bottom story is hell. And you can imagine just how uh, fraught that was as they try to make their way around talking to various suspects. The other characters are almost all gay or lesbian. And I have a question. You said going into Harlem, it was difficult for whites to be there, just like blacks to be there. So no, blacks in the rest of the city. I see. I see. Gotcha. The gotcha. segregation, it was enforced on both sides. Gotcha. I actually heard, I, I don't know if it's true, that when Harlem was originally built, it was considered an upscale housing section. Yes. And it didn't yes. go over well, so they started renting out cheap, and that's when the poorer folks started moving in. 
While the poor folks set up a, a town that was taken by eminent domain for Central Park. And so the blacks and their the homes they lived in were basically raised and the blacks had nowhere to go. So they moved further uptown into Harlem. And the people in the mansions, I mean, it was that, that's just how it was back then. But at, at some point, it was very wealthy. And then at other points, it was not someplace anybody would want to live, black or white. And now it's coming back. I know particularly the restaurants of Harlem are very good uh, and very unique. So it's become, Harlem itself has had its up and down over the years. Bill Clinton has his office there. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. So how do you rate this one? Oh, this is an intriguing mystery. There were so many plot lines I had. There were times when I was writing down notes to try to remember who was where and trying to figure out. I actually tried very hard to figure out this mystery because it was just so many clues. And you had somebody who was spotted here, and then it turned out they were there. And then the timelines don't mesh up. Once it all kind of unravels, ta-da, there's the solution. Carl, unfortunately, is still dead at the end. I want to say one thing that interests me is that you said it's in 1926 in New York. And that was an era where New York, Chicago, San Francisco, where gays weren't accepted, but it it was the in thing to have gay friends and have fun with your gay friends. It just Mm -hmm. was unspoken. Yes, yes. And there were places, though, in the city where they could meet without fear, mostly these speakeasies. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Los Angeles wasn't that way. Los Angeles was conservative as hell. Yeah. It was a much smaller town then. It was. And they weren't happy that Hollywood moved in. <laughs> Brought in all the decadence. Yeah. Anyway, so the afternotes talk about the historical books that formed the basis of his research. Although he he went back and did... There are some buildings that were fictionalized and based on real buildings. And then there's one building, which was a real building with a real name. And he said, you know, I can't find anything written about the interior. He pulled the floor plans, which didn't help. And so he just made up that interior. But he, you know, researching so far as to pull up the floor plans of a hotel that was at its height in 1926, just tells you the level of detail this goes into. And he doesn't. He doesn't overlay the the story at, at all with this is how it was or this is how it is. He just describes all of those places as a backdrop to this mystery. And at the time, you know, the city was just Manhattan. The outer boroughs uh, were the outer boroughs. And at some point, somebody abducts Dash and takes him across the bridge to Brooklyn. He said, oh, my God, I'm going to die in a borough. <laughs> but it's good. It's a great book. And, and it's one of the best I've read all year. I can't recommend it highly enough. And so you folks know, this is another book that Justine sent me a message ahead of time and said, I'm reading this book and it's fantastic. She doesn't do that with every book. I don't do that in every book. And I think I like, you know, as I was moving along, I was like, wow, I kept messaging you. This is really fantastic. Oh, so fantastic. So wonderful. So add it to your list. Add it to your list. Sounds like it needs to be moved to the top. Yes, I I encourage everybody to buy this and read it. Encourage this author to keep publishing these novels. It's terrific. So it's intriguing, Brad. 
and I'm going to get out of your way and get you to Michael Nava. All right. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next week. Hello. My name's Mark Adams, and I am a humanist celebrant. I'm here to tell you about my podcast, Life's Milestones, based around my job. Every fortnight, I speak to a different guest about the milestones in their lives, based around birth, relationships, and death, or naming ceremonies, weddings, and funerals. Each guest will get the same questions, or similar questions, depending on whether or not they're married or have kids. And you'll be amazed and surprised by the wonderful diversity of everybody's answers. Find Life's Milestones wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, Michael. Hey, Brad. How are you? I'm doing very well, and I want to give you a big thank you. You were on my second episode of this show back in October of 2019. So I want to thank you very much for helping get this show kicked off. Well, you've done a great job since. You've had some incredible people on. I will agree with that. I I need to tell you, it's interesting to me, many of the authors that I book, either before I book them or or after, will look through old episodes and they come back and they say, wow, I feel honored. You even had Michael Nava on. (laughs) How does that make you feel? Uh. Well, that's great. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I could be the cheese of the mousetrap that's your podcast. <laughs> it's a lot of work for you, though. I admire that, too, because I've done a podcast. It's a lot of work. It is. It's a labor of love. Uh, my biggest struggle is balancing it with writing and doing the podcast. Yeah. Uh, the podcast is easier, even though I love writing more. I love both doing both, but uh, so it's a tough balance. I really have to challenge myself to get mm-hmm. some writing done. Uh, we all do. Let me do your formal introduction. Okay. Michael Nava is the author of an acclaimed series of eight novels featuring gay Latino criminal defense lawyer Henry Rios, who the New Yorker called a detective unlike any previous protagonist in American noir. He is the recipient of seven Lambda Literary Awards in the gay mystery category and the Bill Whitehead Award for Lifetime Achievement in LGBT Literature. His most recent Rios novel is Lies with Man, which will be published in April by Amble Press, an LGBTQ press and imprint of Bywater Books, of which he is also managing editor. So I need to say, looking at your bio, something I missed before. Actually, I don't think I missed it, but I didn't pick up on it. You grew up in the Sacramento area. I did. But you were born in Stockton. Yeah, but I was only born in Stockton. I didn't actually live there. Okay. I lived in Stockton for about two years uh-huh. and would go up to the Sacramento area quite frequently. So that's why it stood out to me. Uh, I don't know if you've spent much time in Stockton at all. No, I've, I went back there once to do uh, a book thing, but that's about the extent of my knowledge of Stockton. Well, I have lived all over the country, and I can say because I worked in the hotel industry, and I can say something nice about everywhere I've lived. But the only nice thing I can come up with about Stockton is that it was only 80 miles from San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, a pretty, um, it's a pretty dreary town. <laughs> yeah. But the one thing is there was one gay bar in town, and everyone would go there. It was literally across the tracks as you left 
the city limits. And it would be drag night one night, cowboy night. Because it was the only bar in town, it, it was changing each night and catered to everybody. And that was actually a lot of fun. What was it called? Oh, what was that bar called? If you didn't ask me, I could have told you. It's probably still there. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I would occasionally go up to the bars in Sacramento, but I was just down the road from this one in Stockton. So that's where I spent most of my time. And I was semi out at the time. Uh huh. Some people knew I was out. Some people did not. Eventually, they figured it out. So I want to go back to what I brought up earlier before your intro. Knowing you, I know you are a humble man. At least you come across as a humble man. I think that's pretty accurate. But you have an iconic status. You're even listed in numerous literary encyclopedias. Do you find that awkward? Um, well, no, because I'm not really all that aware of it. I don't, um, I don't Google myself to see where I am. <laughs> and uh, I don't, I've never, I don't participate. Um, or haven't participated actively in the literary world. So, you know, I was a lawyer for 35 years, and so um, most of my friends were lawyers, and I just, I just didn't have a lot of contact with the literary world where that would have come up that much. So, I'm not really aware of all of that. <laughs> <laughs> You're just too damn busy. Basically, I live in the present. <laughs> Good job. I Google myself frequently, but it's mainly to see where my website and where the podcast shows up. So, Oh, well, uh, there you go. It's, it's all for that purpose. And okay, uh, ego sometimes, but that's not really the reason. I'm afraid, to, I'm afraid to Google myself and find the negative reviews or the negative comments that people leave. You know, the, the, uh, the Internet has really empowered people to be pretty nasty because they can hide behind the screen of anonymity. So I... I tend to avoid. I don't read the reviews on Amazon or I, I don't or Goodreads. I yeah. Don't, I don't want to know what people think. <laughs> <laughs> it just makes yeah. it harder to write the books. <laughs> Goodreads is successful. Stay away from there. I, I can tell you when you're Googled, a lot of reviews come up from different literary magazines of that nature, and they're all outstanding reviews. I have not gone to Amazon or Goodreads to see. The comments there, but I would guess you you're not getting knocked down too much. <laughs> the last time you were on, you were in the process of starting your own press. However, since then, you're now the managing editor at Amble Press. Right. Explain Amble Press, why it was created, and tell us more about it. So, um, the Amble Press is an imprint of Bywater Books. Bywater Books is a well-established lesbian press. It publishes a lot of fantastic women writers like Cheryl Head, who does the Charlie Mack mystery series, Anne McMahon, my friend Anne, who um, also writes mysteries. So the owners, uh, the publishers of Bywater, uh, Salem West and Marianne Martin, they wanted to reach out to expand their audience to include uh, other writers in the LGBTQ community, particularly they were interested in publishing writers of color. Mm -hmm. Anne was doing the covers of my uh, reprint for my then small press, Persigo Press. And she told me about this, and I told her, you know, I'm thinking of starting this small press because I also want to publish LGBTQ writers, especially writers of color. And so um, she said, well, why don't you just become editor of Amble? We don't have an editor yet. It was a very new imprint. 
And so basically I was handed the jobs I was trying to create for myself without having to create the business infrastructure or the production infrastructure. And so I said, yeah, of course, count me in. So that's how I came to be the managing editor of Anvil. So the conversation just happened to come up at the right time. It was just one of those incredible uh, synchronicity things, you know. Well, having been an author for so long, what is it like to be an editor? Well, you know, the first thing I've learned is that uh, writers can be difficult to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's because they care so much about their books. Uh, you know, understandably, they're very protective. They care a lot. And as editor, I am now in the position of not just choosing and editing the books, but also participating in the pro promotion and marketing. Uh, of other people's books. So, um, you know, I do some hand-holding, but I I like, I really, the, the writers I've chosen, I, I really like them, and I think their books are first grade. And for me, the most interesting part of it is editing. Not that they need that much editing, because these are writers of very high caliber, but when you're editing someone else's book, it's like when you're teaching something, you learn a lot about the process that you can apply to your own work. So in editing their books, I'm, I'm learning a lot about writing. I was wondering if it gave you a, a different perspective on your own writing. Oh, totally. And you see the things that they do well. And I'm like, oh, I could use that in my own book. <laughs> now, it's not specifically only for people of color. I know that's your, your target, but not necessarily all the authors are people no, of color. No, we're about 50-50 at this point. So there's me, of course. I'm Mexican-American. I'm publishing two, two black writers, Joe Oconquo and Casey Hamilton. And I'm publishing another Latino writer, Orlando Medina. And then the other four writers are white. Two of them are women. Well, I hope it's okay for me to say, I did get an email from Richard Stevenson. Who oh, was, Dick, yeah. He was very excited because, well, for people that don't know, he's known for the Donald Strachey Mysteries. And he's going to do it in the series. Am I correct? Yeah. Uh, Cliff Waterman. Clifford Waterman. Set in Philadelphia in the 1940s. He sent me an email to tell me how excited he was that he was going to be published by Ambo Press. Yeah. So, that, I mean, there are many kinds. Of course, I'm looking for diversity in race and ethnicity, but also other kinds of diversity. I mean, Dick is 82 years old. So, you know, I'm publishing. I think that that counts as diversity, too, to publish older writers. And he's writing a book set in the 1940s. And so that that's, I think, an important addition because it, it preserves the memory of that time for our community. Dick and I have known each other since the 80s. You know, I love him. Uh, we're old pals. And I was really happy to take his book. And when I gave him back the edits, he said, well, there were only a few times when I thought, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> now, Lies with Man, let's get with your upcoming book. It's currently available on pre-order. And it's going to release on April 27th, and 2021, for those that may be listening in the future. Yes. You've had... I'm going to try and get you to clarify this for me. You've had six or seven Henry Rios novels. You started in 1986 with Lay Your Sleeping Head, which was re-released. It was originally called The Little Death, correct? Mm-hmm. And then in 2019, you wrote Carved in Bone, which you slid in between the other books and made it book number two. Right. So Lies with Man, it's also taking place in the 80s, correct? Right. Where does that fit into the stories? 
So that's now book three. So the sequence of the first four books, it's Layer Sleeping Head, Carved in Bone, Lies with Man, and then Howtown. So I basically read I basically uh, rewrote the, the initial volumes of the book. So that's uh, that's the order of them. And the, the original first and second books, Lies with uh, Little Death and Golden Boy, are now out of print. And so they've been superseded <laughs> by these by the three books I just mentioned. Well, I was going to ask you about Golden Boy. Was it in 2003 or was it earlier than that? Golden Boy was published in 1988. Okay. I, I must have looked at a later republication of it or, or something. And, and I noticed that it's hard to find. It's, it's virtually gone. Is, is that going to come back? or? So I think what I'm going to do at some point is I'm going to republish both The Little Death and Golden Boy in one volume as sort of the original, uh, the, the original books along with the long sort of essay about Rios and writing the books and, and why, I, why I chose to uh, restart the series. Because some people actually prefer those books to the ones I've written recently, mm-hmm. um, and they do. People are curious about them, so I want to make them available for anyone who's curious about them. So I think that will probably be the next project I do with Rios, is to repackage those books into a single volume and re-release them with a, a long introduction through Amble. I had a boss many years ago tell me that I like change for the sake of change. I'm starting to think that about you. <laughs> well, no, it's, it was not so much that. Is so when I when I started when I wrote the first Rios book when it was published in 1986, Little Death. I wasn't. I didn't intend to start a series. It was a it was a one off book, and I didn't even really think I would be a mystery writer. You know, it was just an experiment for me because um, I wanted to write a novel, and then it got. It got it got a lot of attention, and I was asked to write a second book, and so I wrote a second book, Golden Boy, and then I became a mystery writer. But when I read those first two books, I realized, you know, when you're writing a series, you're thinking three or four books in the future, right? Mm-hmm. And you're you're putting things in the first book, you're foreshadowing what might happen in book five. Well, I didn't do any of that because I didn't know I was writing the series, so I actually wanted to go back and do that. So that I wanted to, I wanted to rewrite the first book so that there was foreshadowing for things that then came up in book seven or eight. So that was my main motivation um, in going back and, and turning it into a, a coherent series, you know, where you learn things about it in books one and two that then are further explained in books six and seven. It is yeah. very common on this show to hear that from authors that write one book and then turn it into a series. And they say, I wish I knew in the beginning it was going to be a series because I would have written it very differently. Yeah, and so I did. I went back and did. <laughs> so you're cleaning up the messes. <laughs> right. Well, saying that you didn't never expected to be a writer, looking at your past, you've had a long and admirable history as an attorney. But you attended Colorado College and you hung out with groups of writers. And I know you've told me in the past that you wrote poetry. And you graduated with... In BA in history. Right. And then you considered a graduate ed- education in history or English. Yes. But you end up enrolling into Stanford Law School. Right. How did that come about? Why Why that change in direction? Well, so, um, you know, as a young man and even as a teenager, I was interested both in writing but also in sort of politics. 
And, you know, if you're interested in politics, inevitably that takes you to the law since so many, um, since law and politics are so closely bound up. Mm -hmm. And I also, you know, I had a childhood interest. I remember watching Perry Mason with my grandfather and being sort of fascinated by that. And I also, one of my childhood heroes was Abraham Lincoln, who was, of course, famously a lawyer. So that was the whole legal thing was always sort of a, a current at the back of my mind. And after I graduated from college and I was confronted with this choice, well, I couldn't make a living as a poet, obviously, um, and I could and I could go to graduate school in history or English, but I didn't want to teach. I didn't want to become a teacher because I didn't think I'd have the patience to teach. So I had to cast around for another career that would provide me a living and allow me time to write. And that's when I thought, oh, I've always kind of been interested in law, so I'll, I'll apply to law school. I only applied to three. I applied to Harvard, Stanford, and Berkeley. And my thought was, if I get into one of those, I'll become a lawyer. If I don't, I'll think of something else to do. Uh, so I didn't really, uh, I didn't have a fallback plan. So you wanted a you wanted a career that would give you time to write. Politics doesn't seem like that would be a very good direction for that. Well, by then I'd given up Paul the idea of being in politics because you know I was a gay man and this was in the seventies and that was uh, it was unthinkable that an openly gay man could be in politics. But I thought I could still be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why I went into law. And I knew going into law, or I learned quickly at Stanford that I didn't wasn't interested in private practice. I was really interested in um, either becoming um, a public defender or doing some kind of um, government or public interest law, because that's that's what I thought would be more fulfilling to me than going going to work for a big firm. And so I ended up actually not as a public defender, but as a prosecutor in Los Angeles in the early 80s. I had an incredible, an incredibly fulfilling legal career. And the best part is it was mostly nine to five. So I actually did have time oh. in the evening. So given that you were a prosecutor, this made me interested. What do you think of the flack that Kamala Harris got for having been a prosecutor when she was running? I met her in uh, San Francisco. She was a DA here in San Francisco, and I actually met her. And um, she is a very intelligent, a very intelligent person and very charming. And I think that that is actually not a fair criticism because in the criminal justice system, although criminal defense lawyers are the ones who are sort of seen as the protectors of the little person, it's actually prosecutors have the power. Prosecutors are the ones who decide whether to charge a crime, what crime to charge, and whether to offer a plea bargain. So I thought, and I tell young law students of color that lawyers of color need to be in those positions because in the criminal justice system, it's the DA who has the power, not the criminal defense attorney. So I actually encourage law students to think about becoming prosecutors because they can do in some sense as much good or more good than they could as criminal defense lawyers. Criminal defense lawyers, they can't make deals. You know, they're not, they don't have that power. So I think that's an unfair rap on her. And I think she's, you know, she's a superb person. Well, I was flabbergasted by it because it almost implies that you, we shouldn't have prosecuting attorneys, which obviously we know there is a need. So it's interesting to hear your feedback on that. Let's talk about uh, Henry Rios. 
for the very few people in the world that don't know Henry, tell us who he is. So Rios is a criminal defense lawyer who's also Mexican-American, um, the son of an immigrant. His father's a Mexican immigrant. His mother is a Mexican-American. He grows up in the Central Valley of California. He goes to a law school and becomes a criminal defense lawyer and is openly gay. And the books sort of chronicle his life through a series of the cases he takes and the people he defends and the men he falls in love with. And at this point, it spans, I guess, about 20 years of his life. So an openly gay lawyer in the 1980s. 80s and 90s, an openly gay criminal defense lawyer of color in the 80s and 90s. Those stories are wrought with challenges. You really well, you know, because among other things, the, the bombshell of AIDS dropped in while I was writing them. So it, they're very much implicated in the epidemic. So let's talk about Lies with Man. Can you share the, the story? Sure. So Lies with Man is uh, book three in the series. And uh, Rios has now moved to Los Angeles from San Francisco, which is where Carved and Bone takes place. He becomes involved with this group of gay and lesbian activists who call themselves queer, which stands for, I forget what it stands Queers United to End Erasure and Repression. And they are fighting against a ballot initiative introduced by evangelical Christians and right-wing Republicans that would allow health officials to quarantine people who are HIV positive. And this is on the 1986 California ballot. And this part is historically true. I mean, Lies with Man is based on actual events. So Rios agrees, to, and they're, they're uh, fighting it by acts of civil disobedience, which means they get arrested. And so he agrees to be their lawyer, you know, to sort of bail them out when they're arrested. An evangelical church is blown up, and the pastor who happens to be there is killed. And the pastor had publicly supported this initiative, and then one of the members of Queer is arrested and charged with the bombing and the murder. And so Rios finds himself not only defending um, the people from Queer from you know being arrested at protests, but also Theo Latour is now charged uh, with capital murder and facing the death penalty. So that's the setup of the novel. That's grabbing. Yeah. Based on true events, as they say. Well, I have a question for you. One of our listeners, Philip Barr, sent in and asked me to ask you a question. Okay. Hi, Philip. You're going to forgive me because I'm going to have to read this. All right. Your original Henry Rios novels were infused with HIV and AIDS stories. Obviously, you were writing during the pandemic. As you rewrite older novels and add new stories during the same time period, what is the difference between how you write these stories originally and how you write them now with the AIDS crisis as history? Well, um, that's a good question, Philip. And the difference, it's subtle, but the difference is that when I was writing the original novels, I didn't know how things were going to turn out in terms of the epidemic. Because, as you know, until 1995-96, there was no effective treatment, and there seemed to be no urgency uh, at the government level, at the federal government level, in finding effective treatments or a cure. So I was writing in the trenches as it was unfolding without knowing what was going to go on. Now I know what happened, 
there are effective treatments for many people, but by no means all, not all people, they can live with HIV um, as a manageable chronic medical condition. My husband is HIV positive, for example. So I have that perspective. So now I'm, I am writing it not in the trenches, but as history in a sense. So I don't know how that affects the actual storytelling, but certainly I write with this different consciousness. To kind of piggyback off that question, you told me in the past that you were writing these new novels to fill in gaps that you saw in Henry's story. Would you say your new perspective looking back over the last 30 years is what prompted you to feel the need to fill those gaps? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just as I said earlier, so I didn't think I was going to write a mystery series. So I wanted to go back and do that foreshadowing and sort of make a coherent universe for Henry. I also didn't know how HIV was going to turn out. And knowing that, that also seemed to, that was also a reason I wanted to go back. I mean, carve. So one of the things I didn't write about was I did not write about the advent of the AIDS crisis back then because of the way that I was, it's a long story, but basically I, I, you know, by the time the first book was published, AIDS was already out there in 1986, but that first book I'd started writing it in 1979 before AIDS. So there is no AIDS in the first book and there's nothing about the advent of AIDS. And then Golden Boy, which was published in 88, I have AIDS in there, but not how AIDS came into the community. So one of the things I want to do is go back and write about just that period of from 82 to 84 when the epidemic first hit the community. That's why I wrote Carved in Bone. Carved in Bone set in San Francisco in 84, and it's about that. And the other thing I wanted to write about that I did was the war between the evangelicals and the gay community. Um, and that's what really Lies with Man is about. So, yeah, I wanted to go back and feel some historical, some thematic and chronological loopholes about not only Rios's life, but about the epidemic itself. I want to tell you, I brought this up on the show before. During that era, I was closeted and living in the South, and AIDS was something in the news going on out there somewhere in the world. So now reading novels such as yours gives me such a perspective of a time period that I missed. And I guess I could say I'm happy I missed, but it really gives me perspective that I, I had no concept of. Yeah. Well, what do they say in the South? God bless you. <laughs> bless your heart. Bless your heart, which really means F you. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> no, not you. Just, I know, I know. We talked, when you wrote Carved in Bone, we talked about the possibility of a contemporary novel. I told you I was surprised because I was expecting it to be a contemporary novel with Henry in it. And you said that's a possibility down the road. Is that still a possibility? Yeah, it is. You know, I have not finished. I've now finished rewriting Henry's past. And so the next Rios book, um, whenever that appears, will be, will bring him into the, if not the present, at least the near present. I would like to write a book set in around 20, 2014, 2016, before Trump, but after marriage equality, mm -hmm. and talk about, you know, how he responds to all of those changes, and um, he would be a judge at that point, uh, which is going to be a little tricky. I don't know of any mystery series where the detective is a judge because that's not really the role of judges. So I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to figure that one out. 
Well, it's interesting you, you're talking about 2014 because that is when you wrote Created Equal. You co-wrote Created Equal, Why Gay Rights Matter to America. And Actually, that, that came out in 94. Oh, 94. Yeah, See, these yeah. get reissued and they totally throw me off. Yeah, 2015 is when I published uh, The City of Palaces, which is a historical novel. But Created Equal was published in 94, originally, by St. Martin's. Well, I want to. you mentioned queer, and I want to go back to the word queer. You and I had a chat a while ago, uh, oh, yeah. because I brought a podcast up that you were on in 2019, and you said at that time that you kind of accepted queer, but you didn't use it for yourself. And several months back, we chatted, and you didn't remember that podcast. And you said you actually now use it in your own writing. Why do you think there was that change over that period, if you can recall? Well, because uh, I'm influenced by a younger generation of queer people who, you know, for whom that word doesn't have the same stigma, stigma it does for those of us who are boomers. And because now the community is gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, intersex, asexual, it's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. Just as uh, the word Latin, Latinx, is used by younger Latino and Latinas to cover an entire community that spans people from Argentina to Mexico. It's just convenient. It's convenient. And and I also admire younger people for taking back the word. So I've just, it, it's lost. I just don't have a problem with it anymore. You know, it's just uh, as a term that covers the, the entire spectrum of the community. I just think it's, it's fine. Rios would never call himself queer. He's gay. He's well, no, gay. certainly not in that time period. And as you know, I the reason we chatted, I was really struggling with renaming the podcast. Mm. And because I had been interviewing many more people than just gay men and had been making a concerted effort to reach out and make the show more diverse, I felt it was necessary to change the name. But there is still a lot of hurt amongst a lot of people, especially men, regarding the word queer. Sure. And that was my challenge. Uh, a lot of people are still hurt by the word when they hear it. But I... The decision came down to basically what you said. The alphabet, alphabet is getting so long, and it's just it's much more convenient to say queer. And somebody told me once, well, I'm, not, I'm okay with the word queer, whatever, if that's what they want to say, but I'm always going to be a writer of gay mysteries. Mm -hmm. And my response back was, I consider myself the same thing. I write gay mysteries, because, but as a gay man, man, I'm under the umbrella of queer individuals. Right. So it's very convenient. I mean, I feel that way. I mean, just as far, as far as my ethnicity is concerned, for purposes of inclusiveness, I'm part of the Latinx community, but I think of myself as Mexican-American. I mean, that's my specific ethnicity mm -hmm. and my specific culture. I'm part of the queer community, but I'm a gay man within that community. I mean, I don't, I'm not bisexual. I'm not trans. I'm a gay man. Um, so, yeah, it's like in geography, it's like the larger area. It's like California, but I live in San Francisco. <laughs> very good analogy. But I think we do have to be very respectful of people who find queer problematic, and I am. You know, I, I acknowledge mm -hmm. it because I was traumatized by that word, too, when I was a kid. Yeah, that's why it was such a struggle for me to make that decision. I had a friend. I referred her to read your book, Lay Your Sleeping Head because I love the novel, and I told her, you need to read this. Well, she got confused, and she read City of Palaces instead, and she loved it. Now, that, as far as I know, that is currently the only non-mystery that you have available. 
Do you anticipate any more in the future? I'm working on the sequel, actually. That'll that'll be the next novel I publish if I ever finish it. So, because City of Palaces was is the first in a trilogy of novels. So I'm working on book two and hoping to have a. Oh, geez, I hope to have a first draft by the fall. It's just (laughs) I've been working on it off and on since since 2016. She still hasn't read Lay Your Sleeping Head as far as I know, but I'll tell her that you're writing the, the next book in that, and she will be very excited. Do you have the time to read, well, obviously do as an editor, but reading contemporary mysteries by many of the popular authors now? Uh, well, not for leisure. I was, for the last two years, I was a judge for the Los Angeles Times Book Award in the mystery suspense category, so... I've read dozens of mysteries in the last, mm-hmm. dozens if not hundreds of mysteries in the last two years from contemporary uh, mystery writers. Um, but, you know, I don't necessarily have time to read mysteries for pleasure. When I, when I do read for pleasure, I tend to read nonfiction. Based on what you have read, do you see differences with novels that are written today compared to when you were writing in the 80s? Yeah, so it's interesting. I just did this... Um, I just did a panel for the Mystery Writers of America, Northern California chapter called Mysteries with a Mission, where I talked to some other mystery, we were all mystery writers of color, as it turned out, and uh, two of us were queer. And we talked about this whole subgenre of uh, queer writers and writers of color who have taken the mystery form to explore issues of social justice, homophobia, racism, misogyny, homelessness, gentrification, while telling a really good mystery story. So I think that that, that sort of subgenre, which I call Mysteries with a Mission, is uh, one of the biggest changes. I mean, those books did not exist before the 90s when writers like Walter Mosley and Sarah Paretsky and me um, started, started to write them. I mean, there were, there've always been, like Joseph Hansen was writing, uh, a great, wonderful gay mystery writer, was writing in the 70s. Chester Himes, an African-American writer, was writing his crime fiction in the 60s, I think. But it was a trickle. Now it's, there's a floodgate. So, so this year's, in the LA Times Book Award, our finalists, the finalists, one is a gay man, two are black writers, three are women. And all of those books have some kind of social justice subtext to them. Well, we are approaching the end of our conversation, which I hate. Again, as I tell say many times, I wish this was a three-hour show. <laughs> so it is time for Awkward Questions Authors Get. Okay. And I believe you were the one of the authors I did a survey. I surveyed a group of authors uh, for odd, awkward, or unusual questions they've been asked before by readers. So if you'll hold still, I'm going to spin the wheel and see what you get. Okay. I'm a top, by the way. That's the question. No, we have one about circumcision, but I haven't seen anybody about a top. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Can there be at least two oral scenes and one all the way in your next novel? Uh, sure. <laughs> I have no trouble. <laughs> I have I have no trouble writing sex scenes if they're if they fit into the narrative. And I gotta say, I bring your book up frequently as an example. I get very frustrated with 
a lot of the contemporary novels that are very popular that sex is thrown in there or it revolves very much around sex and romance and there you know mystery is there sometimes mystery is a little bit stronger but there almost has to be that sex and romance they feel is necessary to mm-hmm. sell their books and i use you as an example all the time because having read your books you don't shy away from sex but they serve a purpose in the story yes they, they aren't just there no thank you for doing that it, it's not everybody has that skill well, who people have sex with and how they have sex can be as revealing of character as anything else about them. But it does have to, for me, there has to be a narrative context. Um, it's not that I don't enjoy reading pornography. Believe me, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't write pornography, at, at least not yet. Not, not like my friend Steve Saylor, for example. Yeah, I have a promo that goes out to other podcasts that they play regarding the show. And I, I say on there, I'm like, hey, I like erotica as much as the next guy, but there are more books than that. And so come listen to our podcast, even if you enjoy erotica. One of the reasons why I brought this up again is Henry has, at times, uh, anonymous sex. Now, generally, he tends to get to know the individual later. Right. And sometimes good characters die. I'm not talking about any specific novels, so I'm not trying to give anything away. Do you think that could happen today in, in most novels? That a positive character could die? That and the frequent anonymous sex that can go on during the 80s. It it seems very taboo to write that now. I don't know why, because God knows with the apps, with, you know, Grindr and Recon and whatnot, anonymous sex is happening all the time, even in the pandemic, unfortunately. I don't know why writers shy away from writing that. You know, it's changed somewhat. I mean, I, I read about... I think that some, what you're talking about, some mysteries, gay mysteries, have become much more formulaic in some ways. Mm-hmm. And writers are expected to deliver what I what they call an H-E-A. Yes. Is that what yeah. it's called? Happily Ever After, or at least an H-F-N. What's an H-F-N? Happily For Now. Okay. So I think writers who are starting out now may feel that they have to hit those marks. When I started writing, I didn't, and I don't. And I I enjoy some of those books. Don't get me wrong. I really do, and I have friends who write those books. But they're they're not true to life, in a way. You know, I think the books I write, which are a little darker, um, where good people do die and people do cook up, that that's a little more, um, that's a, a more a more realistic portrayal of the gay male community. I'm going to bring my own book into it. My uh, main character has PTSD, and in the second novel, it's actually worse than in the first novel. And I base this on reality and talking to people with PTSD. And there's a lot of frustration, and I believe, well, it's it's almost been said. I think there's an expectation that love is going to take care of the problem. Mm-hmm. because once you have love, then it's happily ever after. And to me, that's not realistic. Mm-hmm. But there is pressure to mm-hmm. go that route. So you hit the nail on the head when you said that. Well, you know, I've never tried. I never had to make my living as a writer. That's the other thing, I, because I, my, I made my living as a lawyer. And so I never felt the economic pressures to sell a lot of books or to write a lot of books. So I think I have the luxury of writing what I want and not having to worry about making a living at it, which I understand that many other writers who are trying to make a living at it 
they don't have that same luxury. First, I'm going to give people a suggestion. You currently have seven books in the Henry Rio series. You can get them for $19.95 for Kindle on Amazon. And if anybody wants to catch up, I highly recommend it. And look out for Lies with Man. It's available now on pre-order and will be available on April 27th. And this year is 2021. Great. Thank you for your time, Michael. Oh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Brad. It really is. Be sure to subscribe to Queer Writers of Crime wherever you hear our show. Tell a friend to thank you for listening.